Good morning. This morning, uh, we are going to get back into our study of Luke. Beginning of December, we uh, took a break to prepare for Christmas, and then we wanted to start the new year with a discussion of, uh, of who we are, where we're going. And that discussion is going to continue. But now we can get back into uh, Luke. If we stick to our schedule, we will be hitting the resurrection story right at Easter time. And the couple of weeks right before that have a chance to prepare with the, the trial and the crucifixion. It's great the way God's working out our schedule. So let's get back into Luke. Uh, we are at the end of chapter 20. Now just to catch everybody up on what's been going on... Um, in the last chapter, chapter 19, we saw the, the triumphal entry where Jesus comes into Jerusalem for the last time. and The crowds there welcome him and, and praise him as the Messiah, the son of David. The uh, religious leaders don't like this. They're threatened by it. They realize that they're losing some of their control over the people, and they don't like that at all. So they uh, challenge Jesus' authority. They send in teams of you know, spin doctors, uh, people uh, from the uh, intelligentsia, whose mission it was to uh, come and to trip Jesus up, to come up with questions that they could ask Jesus that would, that would trap him, either by uh, disillusioning the people who were following him or by getting him in trouble with the Roman authorities so they would arrest him and get rid of him. But every time they came at Jesus with one of these questions, Jesus handled their question just with gentleness and simplicity, yet with a brilliance that silenced them. Verse uh, 40 of chapter 20 says, And no one dared to ask him any more questions. See, they were outgunned and they knew it. Every time they asked Jesus, <coughs> excuse me, asked Jesus a question, he would answer it simply, but then he would turn their question around into an appeal for them to give themselves to God. Now they ask him, should we pay taxes to Caesar? They thought, well, you know, if he answers yes, the uh, Galileans will turn on him because the Galileans hated the Romans. They resented Caesar. But if he says no, then, then the uh, Romans will get rid of him for uh, sedition, rebellion. But Jesus answered their question and he said, finished by saying, but give to God that which is God's. Give to God that which is stamped with His image on it, your very lives. You see, Jesus didn't just answer their question. He, he finished it by appealing to them to, to turn to God, to give themselves to God. Well, they sent in the second team, the, the, the Sadducees, and they came up with a question about uh, resurrection after death. And again, Jesus answered it, this time from the Old Testament. Then he turned it around to, to appeal to them to give to God their lives while they're still living. You see, Jesus wasn't content just to better them in argument. He's not trying to show how smart he is. He loves these guys. And he wants to, to draw them to what's important, to, 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 to break through their thinking and, and turn their hearts to him. He wants them to come to the knowledge of the truth. Their obstinate and cynical attacks are not met with anger and resentment and spite. They're met with gentle, 
loving but clear and honest appeal. And that's exactly what he does in our passage too. This is where we pick up. Uh, he's talking to this same group of people. It's, again, he's not content just to silence them. And they're not quiet just because they're afraid of the intellectual duel. They're quiet because Jesus has, has turned them back on themselves to examine themselves, consider their own spiritual condition. That's what Jesus always does. Eventually, he comes back to where are you? Where are you in your relationship to God? Who is your Lord? You know, Christianity is a great philosophy, and it can be discussed on that basis. Christianity is a great system to live by. It's got answers for life and, and relationships, how to relate to your family, your spouse, your children, how to relate to your government, how to relate to others. Christianity is very practical in its answers to how we should live. We can discuss it on that basis, but that isn't enough. Christianity is a great religion, revealing what is behind life and what is after this life. And we can discuss it on that basis, but that isn't enough. There is one essential element that at some point in the conversation has to come into play. And that is what Jesus does with this conversation. That's where he takes this conversation. He isn't content to have just bested them in argument. He's not content to have just silenced them. He wants to go further with it. He wants to take it to that final necessary step. So he tells them a riddle. Verse 41. Then Jesus said to them, How is it that they say the Christ is the son of David? David himself declares in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. David calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? Now, riddles are, are great teaching devices. They, they, they get us thinking. And more than that, they confront kind of the locked-in ways of thinking, the, the ruts in our thinking that we get into. They help us address things, maybe from a new angle, and expand our ability to, to, to really see things as they are. I remember uh, one such riddle. This riddle doesn't work as well as it used to when I heard it about 20 years ago. But it's a good example. So let me try it on you if you haven't heard it. If you've heard it, don't say anything. Okay, a young man is in a car accident. Uh, they rush him to the hospital. And the ER doctors there see immediately that he needs surgery. So they call for a surgeon. The surgeon on call comes down, looks at the boy, and says, call my partner. I can't do this surgery. This young man is my son. But the surgeon was not, in fact, the boy's father. Who was the surgeon? Now, like I said, this used to work better uh, years ago. I think over the last 20 years, there's been an appropriate adjustment of our preconceptions and prejudice. But did you figure it out? Yeah, most of you are nodding your head. There's a couple of yeah, it's his mother. The surgeon is the boy's mother. Now, the, the, the point of that um, riddle is to uh, get us thinking, especially to, 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 to stop our thinking that, that surgeons are only women. Now, the majority of surgeons are women, but we can get locked into that thinking, and so 
life confuses us. It doesn't make sense. Something's wrong because we're locked into a way of thinking. And what's worse is that our preconceived ways of thinking can affect other people. Maybe we discourage some young woman who God is is calling into this profession and God's going to use her greatly there. You see, the the purpose of the riddle is to to kind of shake our thinking, get us to to, to see that kind of incipient sexism that can creep into our thinking. Well, Jesus had a specific purpose in his riddle as well. There were some blocks in these people thinking that uh, really needed to be addressed. And what's at stake here is not just a career. What's at stake here is people's eternal spiritual life. So let's look again at this riddle. Verse 41 again. Then Jesus said to them, How is it that they say that Christ is the son of David? David himself declares in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. David calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? Now the gist of of Jesus' riddle is that if the Messiah, the Christ is David's son, then how come in Psalm 110, David calls him Lord? Now, there are a couple of, of, of things culturally you need to understand for, this, for, for you to understand this riddle, for it to make sense. First of all, realize in that culture, a father was always greater than his son. Uh, it was the moral and spiritual obligation of the son to honor the father, to submit to him, to, 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 to pay homage to him. So in their thinking, it's totally unreasonable for David to submit to his son. It's supposed to be the other way around. It's supposed to look the other way. And that's why it's a little confusing to them. Second, uh, the other thing to realize is that David was the ultimate the epitome of leadership in Israel. He was viewed as as the greatest king the nation had, perhaps even the greatest leader ever, except for perhaps Moses. And these teachers, these leaders that Jesus is addressing, saw themselves as David's successors. But none of them would ever dare compare themselves in in greatness to, to David. That would be going too far. And finally, realize that the the title, Son of David, was probably the most common title for the Messiah in use at at that time. That's how they referred to the coming Messiah. Uh, In the writing, there would be things like, when the Son of David comes, he he will deliver Israel from its oppression. When the Son of David comes, he will bring justice and peace. I realize, too, that the people at this time were calling Jesus Son of David. Chapter 18, there's a blind man who would not stop crying out, Son of David, have mercy on me. So with these pieces together, you see perhaps a little more of why this is so confusing, why this is such a hard riddle for them. King David, the greatest leader ever, is calling his descendant, his Lord. And there's an act of submission. It's an act of acknowledgement that this Messiah is greater than he. But again, in human relationships, the Father is the one submitted to, not the one submitting. Now, 
it's a fairly easy riddle for us to figure out. I mean, when we're this far away and we've been taught this much theology, we know that the the Messiah, the Christ, is the Son of God. Jesus was not just the descendant of David through Mary. He was directly the Son of God. Jesus is not just human, though he's fully human. He is also divine. But realize for these guys, this would have been a tough one. This would have stumped them. They couldn't even conceive of that possibility. That, that way of thinking would not have even entered their mind. So, so, so they're struggling with it. Even though there's all kinds of clues in the Old Testament, they can't really see those clues because their thinking has been locked in. And again, Jesus wants to shake up that thinking. He wants to, 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 to get them thinking in a new way. Now, is Jesus' point just this theological point that he is God? That's a pivotal theological point. But I don't think that sufficiently explains Jesus' purpose. I don't think he wanted their thinking to stop there. See, I, I think the point is this. That if David, the, the, the greatest king that ever lived, the ultimate leader, if David gladly, willingly submitted himself to the Christ, how much more appropriate would it be for these, his successors, for them to submit themselves to the Christ? See, that's where Jesus wants to bring it. Not just a head knowledge, a submission, a giving of themselves. See, when all, is, all of the intellectual games are done, this is where the conversation must lead. When all of the, the, the philosophical discussions are, are completed, this is where the conversation needs to go. When all of the discussion of, of, of ethics and lifestyle are finished, this is the necessary endpoint. The submission to the Christ as Lord. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Lord. And that's, that's the ultimate issue here. Again, Jesus, in his love for them, is not content to have silenced them. He doesn't want to just win a debate, show how smart he is. He loves them. And he wants to break through their thinking so that they can find life in him. They can see the truth and respond. That's his heart. That's his desire to break them out of their narrow, prejudiced, blind thinking. Well, in the same way, Jesus loves us. We uh, come together to worship him, to, to sing songs of praise and celebration, to, to study his word. We, we, we discuss the, the uh, ethical and philosophical implications of our faith. We, we, we discuss how it affects and impacts relationships and life. We look at the spiritual realities. And all of this is good, but it doesn't go far enough. That's not where Jesus wants our thinking to stop, to end. It needs to go further. And in his love for us, Jesus will take us further. He'll confront our thinking if that's as far as it goes. He wants us to deal with the issue of his lordship because he loves us. It's not enough just to have the trappings 
Uh, it's not enough just to enjoy our celebrations together, like our Christmas celebrations, or, or, or just to enjoy the fellowship in, in growth groups and in the ministries of the church. It's got to get to that ultimate question. Are you submitting to Jesus as your Lord? Can you say with David, my Lord, and really mean it? Now, this isn't an issue of perfection. This isn't an issue of just kind of toughening up and trying harder. This is an issue of submission, an issue of dependence. The Lord is not just a, a religious term. It's not just a term of respect. Lord's a, a business term, boss. Lord is a relational term, the one I listen to and trust even more than my own thoughts and plans and feelings. Lord is a, is a practical term, the one who I trust so much that he determines what I do and what I don't do. It's a term of submission. The one who loves me so much and has shown me that love that I am committed to obeying him even when I don't want to. Because Jesus loves us and knows that we were created to worship him, to to follow him, to, to trust him as Lord. He's not content to just silence the arguments in in, in our lives. He's not content to just leave us silent. He wants to take us that final step. He wants to give us life for us to enjoy the life that we experience as we trust Him and as we truly receive Him, accept Him as our Lord. That's what He wants to offer to us. He offers to become our Lord. And that becomes the final question. Are you able to say with David, my Lord? Now these uh, leaders that Jesus is talking to in our passage, they just sit there. They're unwilling. They refuse to open their minds. They refuse to think any further, to think any deeper. And so Jesus warns the people sitting around listening what that will do to you. How that will affect your life. He, he, he uses a beautiful contrast. One telling what submission to his lordship doesn't look like. The other showing what it does look like. The contrast between these kind of pompous, self-righteous leaders and a poor, loving widow. Let's read uh, the next verses, starting with verse 45 and into the next chapter. While all the people were listening, Jesus said to his disciples, Beware of the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and love to be greeted in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. Such men will be punished most severely. As he looked up, Jesus saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor woman put in two very small copper coins. I tell you the truth, he said, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. Now let's look at these people. First of all, these 
kind of the, the, these religious leaders, they're in it for what they can get. They are pompous, self-absorbed. They're in it actually for the, for the, the money and for the ego, for, for the prestige. Jesus says, these men or such men will be punished most severely. Another translation I like better, it says, they will receive the greater judgment. People like this tick God off. He is annoyed, perhaps even infuriated by leaders who act like this. Why? Well, because leaders are, are supposed to represent him, and this so badly misrepresents him that it chases people away. It turns people off to him. Now, hypocritical leaders distort the truth. They shut the door of life in people's faces. They're, they're shepherds who devour the sheep for the sake of their own profit, for the sake of their own egos. It's not just that they're kind of petty, pompous little fools themselves. It's that they actually do inhibit others, impede others from coming to the Lord. People rightly say, if that's what God's like, I don't want anything to do with Him. You know, one of the most, uh, or one of the greatest um, impediments to people coming to Christ is the hypocrisy of Christians. And we claim Him as our Lord, but so often our attitudes and our behavior don't reflect Him at all, don't look at all like Him. See, if He is our Lord, if He is deciding how we respond, if He is showing us how to act and live, then we'll look like Him, we'll act like Him if He's in charge. He is gentle and humble. He came to this earth not to, 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 to get his ego built up. He came to give his life for us. He did not come to be served, but to serve. He didn't come to condemn, but that the world through him might be saved. And yet when people look at us, if we aren't truly submitted to his lordship, what they tend to see are petty little people who are absorbed in their own problems and feelings, who are looking down on everyone else in order to feel better about themselves, in order for us to, to, to bolster our own egos. And again, ultimately, what happens when we don't submit ourselves to the Lord, we begin to manifest not His character, but the very most unchristlike aspects of human nature. See, these, uh, this description of, of these teachers of the law is the, the epitome of what we will look like if we try to practice our religion without true submission to our Lord. It is gross. Who here wants to look like that? Jesus said, they like to walk around in flowing robes. That is, they like all the trappings of wealth. They like to look good. That's what really matters to them. I remember uh, years ago, Billy Crystal used to play a character on TV that would always say, you look marvelous. And then he would go on to say, uh, it is always better to look good than to be good. Well, you know, this is really bottom line. 
their thinking, their motto. Jesus says that uh, they love to be seated or to be greeted in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. See, in that society, the clergy was highly respected. They were the top of society. Now, I uh, grieve the loss of respect in our society for Christianity. And it does grieve me at times that, that, that uh, pastors and ministers are always kind of portrayed in the media as villains and psychopaths. But quite honestly, I am grateful for the debunking of the, of, of the myth that Christian leaders and pastors are, are inherently superior to other people. They are not. And I think when we, we, we treat them as different as other than the rest of us, we begin to feed into to the pride and this way of thinking. I am so grateful to have a body where I can feel, even though I do a lot of the teaching, that I can feel part of the body, not other than. We do have Christian leaders, and Christian leaders should be examples of submission to Christ. And it is important for us to follow the example of godly Christian leaders. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. He doesn't say follow my, the example of my insecurities and selfishness. He says, follow me as I follow Christ. Follow Christ and anything you see of Christ in me. The writer of Hebrews says, Think about your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Imitate their faith, their, their, their trust in Jesus, their submission to his lordship, not their self-pretentious and, and self-absorbed attitudes. Now, I am a leader here. Quite honestly, that often is a frightening responsibility for me. Help me out. If you ever see me acting like Jesus' description of these teachers of the law, smack me upside the head. I, uh, I <laughs> made that same statement to the first service, and unfortunately my wife and children and Several of the people on the staff were in here. My ears are still ringing from the blows, but I mean it. I mean, there's just no excuse. It is such a deadly trap. God gives us leaders to care for us, to lead us, to, to help us in our life together. Pastors and elders and leaders in the different ministries. God has given them to us. So they're, they're to be shepherds, feeding, caring for, protecting the flock. And for them to do that effectively, we must submit to that leadership, cooperate with them, work with them. But remember, the great shepherd, Jesus himself, came not to be served, but to serve. Not to take, but to give. Jesus says these religious leaders devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. See, they pretend to be great friends of God just like this with God. And they make these long, showy prayers so everybody thinks, oh boy, this guy knows God. But while they're doing that, they're ripping people off. They're taking. God's a giver. People who know Him aren't takers. 
They're, they're devouring widows' houses, it says. Now, a widow in that society was proverbial for somebody who was poor and defenseless. She had no way of making money and no one to stand up in defense of her. In our society, perhaps uh, he would have mentioned the, uh, the poor single mom. But how were these teachers devouring their houses? Well, they were exploiting them religiously. You see, these teachers of the law lived off donations from people in the community. So they were incessantly talking about the importance of giving. They were always emphasizing giving as one of the primary keys to righteousness. They were exploiting good-hearted people, uh, widows who, who wanted to do the right thing, who honestly wanted to honor God with the little they had. And these people w would use pressure and guilt and, and manipulation, anything else they could to exploit them. They didn't care the impact it had on their lives. They didn't care if they lost everything. All they cared about is what they got. They lived off the kindness of others, but there was absolutely no kindness in their hearts. Now, how modern does the Bible seem at times? I mean, how often do we hear of some elderly couple who are swindled out of their life savings by some preacher? The other day I was in a house that had cable TV and I was channel surfing and kind of just shooting through the channels incessantly. I kept crossing this uh, Christian station. And honestly, literally, every time I stopped to look, they were asking for money. And they were telling us th th that this particular project, giving sacrificially to this project, was how we honor God. And they were implying that, that if this particular f fundraising uh, goal wasn't met, that God would be disgraced and we would have let him down. And i got to think God was more annoyed by that than I was. And I, I couldn't help but thinking about this passage and wondering how many widows' houses are being devoured just to, to, to make this man rich or, or to, to allow him to have a worldwide ministry to inflate his ego all in the name of faith and the reputation of God. Now realize, money is important. Also realize, I live off your contributions. So, <laughs> but also realize, that's how Jesus lived. He was financially supported as well. During the years of his public ministry, that's how he lived. There's nothing inherently wrong in receiving support. Also realize that it is critically important that we teach here about money and how you handle it. It's an important thing that we need to teach. Jesus taught frequently, extensively about money. Paul did, but neither of them ever handled the matter, making it seem an emergency. You've got to give or God's going to be disgraced, that somehow God is going to be foiled. None of them ever used manipulation and pressure and guilt to exploit. In fact, Paul, when he was in Macedonia, he tried to keep the people there from giving because they were so poor. And he said they begged him for, for the privilege of giving to those who had more need than they. Paul tells us that they gave themselves to the Lord. When we give ourselves, our whole selves to the Lord, it includes our money. See, giving is 
an important expression of our submission to the Lordship of Christ. It's an important expression of our love for Him. It's an important expression of the fact that we don't trust money. We trust God. We trust our Father. We trust our Lord. See, Jesus taught that how we handle our money is one of the key indicators of our spiritual maturity, of the reality of our relationship with God, where our hearts really are. And if we want to teach the full counsel of God here, we will have to talk about money often. As we move into the ministries that God is opening and the opportunities that God is opening in front of us, we will need to talk about the money involved in that movement, in moving into those. Money is one of the resources God uses to minister among us. If we, as a body, feel God is calling us to build more or to hire more or to to get more involved in some projects in the community or needs within the body, we will talk about the money that is involved with that. It's, It's part of our life as a church, and it's part of your development as a disciple. But if we ever begin to, to, to handle that in any way other than just a straightforward discussion, if we ever start to use manipulation and pressure, stop giving here. And you need to keep giving. It's part of your, your growth and maturity, but give somewhere else. If we ever start to, to, to act or believe that, that money is the key to ministry, we need you to confront us. We are slipping into error. Now, I always tell people who are raising support that we basically have two jobs. Our first job is to teach the whole counsel of God so that people see how important how they handle their money really is. That where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And the second thing we need to do is just simply, clearly make the need known. Don't inflate it, make it look bigger, don't make it look less. Just honestly make it known. And that's it. That's our job. It's never our job to motivate people to give. That's the Holy Spirit's job. And it's never true that we are ultimately dependent on gifts. We are dependent on God. and He can teach us to be satisfied with little or much. And ultimately, it is He who will supply, either through the giving of His people or perhaps through finding a coin in the mouth of a fish. And that's His job. That's His to decide. Ours is to simply teach the truth, make needs known, and trust Him without any guilt, without any fear, without any manipulation and pressure. Now let's uh, take a look at the uh, positive example of spirituality in, in Luke's account. Look at, let's look at this, this widow, this woman. Verse 1 of chapter 21. As he looked up, Jesus saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. I tell you the truth, he said, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. Now this woman is the opposite of these pretentious, self-absorbed leaders. She's not in it for what she can get. She's in it because she loves God. 
She's not practicing her faith for show. She doesn't even know anyone is watching. See, this woman demonstrates, displays Christ-like character. She acts like Christ. Quietly, unpretentiously loving God and meeting the needs of others. And Jesus notices. He always does. Says he he lifted his head. I've got to think his head his his head was in his hands. After talking to these religious leaders, he was discouraged because they were plugging their ears. They wouldn't respond. And he looks up and he sees this wonderful older wood, widow. And he is encouraged. He is pleased. He is warmed by her love for his father. You see. This is what we will look like when we are submitted to his lordship. This beautiful, spirited woman. And remember, a widow was proverbial for poor and powerless. And yet she is the one. She is the example to follow, not the others. Jesus said that she gave more than all of the others, but she only gave two lepta, two mites. They're small coins that are worth less than a penny, less than two cents. You see, what matters to God is not how much money we have or don't have. What matters to Him is that relationship with Christ, that walk with Him, that love for him. See, love has to be expressed. If, if love isn't expressed, it's not there. Now that's kind of tough in, in our society because we're so used to say, saying we love somebody and then trashing them. But the fact is, if love isn't expressed, it isn't there. Borrowing from James, love without works is dead. But people, this is what love looks like. That quiet, unassuming freedom to give, to love. Now be careful, this isn't saying that we should put our entire net worths into the offering plate. It would be kind of fun if it was saying that. Unfortunately, this is one of the passages that exploiters use to consume, to, to, to devour widows' houses. They say, give till it hurts. Show that you really believe. Put it all in there. They don't care what the impact is on those people. That's not how they live. That's not what they do. That's not what I think God is calling us to do. God wants all of us. He wants our whole selves for Him to be our Lord, to put our whole selves in that offering plate. Now, it may be true at some point, my Lord may call me to empty my bank account for some need. But He'll show me that. He'll take me there. And it is true that our giving isn't to just be convenient. It needs to be regular and consistent, even in hard times. And often our giving will be a test of faith, giving more than feels safe. But again, the real issue is that relationship with Christ, that walk with Him. That submission to His Lordship. When He is Lord of our lives, He will be Lord of our money 
as well as everything else, as well as our attitudes. When we are in submission to Him, we will be changed to be like Him. We will be, we will begin to think like Him and we will no longer think that our lives depend on money. We'll no longer depend on our money. We will depend on Him. And whether we give two cents or two million dollars, We'll do it because we love Him. We'll do it because He's our Lord. Not because anyone will be impressed. Again, it comes back to the real issue. How is it they say the Christ is the Son of David? David calls Him Lord. David, the greatest king that ever lived, gladly, willingly submitted himself to his descendant, Jesus the Christ. He eagerly, excitedly acknowledged that this Messiah is his Lord and he laid everything at his feet. And the question for us is, is, will you, with David, call him your Lord and mean it? Will you call this Jesus, the one who is the Christ, my Lord? Let's pray. Lord, we uh, just praise you for your love. That uh, you love us so much. That you are so good. That you are so wise. You are so generous. That your call to become our Lord is not because you need your ego stroked. It's not because you want to to be in control of everything in some unhealthy way. It's because you love us and you know that that's where we will find life. Lord, give us the wisdom. Open our eyes to to that way of thinking, which is so different than the the, the channels of thinking that we've dug into our own lives. As we make decisions every day, we get locked into ways of thinking. Lord, break through those so that we do turn to you genuinely, honestly, as our Lord. And having chosen you as our Lord, give us the courage, give us the fortitude to obey you even when we don't want to. Lord, you are good and we trust you. We pray this in your name. Amen.